All right, we are back in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. Once again, uh, this is actually a good spring day in the swing of May. And I'm here with one of, uh, I always use this term a lot. I use the term consigliere, one of my business uh, advisors, uh, somebody that's kept me from doing stupid stuff and also helped me out of some stupid situations. Um, for for years and years, the the only person that I would have run through a contract uh, and trust what's happening with that contract or what should happen with the contract is my entertainment attorney, Stephanie Hammonds. Stephanie, how are you today? I'm great, and I'm glad to be here. I thank you for that wonderful introduction, Kyrie. Okay, most definitely, most definitely. Um, you've helped in so many situations. I always tell people, you you have no idea how many times I've referred you to people. And people always think to themselves, like, mm, that's probably going to cost a lot of money or this or that or that. I'm like, give her a call, give her a call, give her a call, give her a call. Uh, but like most attorneys, attorneys get called not in a preventative measure, but in a solutionary situation. So solutionary situations when you call attorneys, let's let's go into this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk directly into the camera. When you call an attorney because you <laughs> need an attorney, it's gonna cost you money because probably what you did is gonna cost you some money. And that's whether it's civil, legal, um, intellectual property and that's what entertainment law is um real estate law anytime you need an attorney be prepared to uh pay some money because the attorney needs to work a and b whatever you got yourself into is probably going to cost some money in systems to help either get you out of it or whatever so let's talk a little bit about that okay. your background in entertainment law i know a little bit of this story um, but what led you into entertainment law is going to be one of the questions that I have. Um, and furthermore, your background in the city of Detroit, because a lot of people that become lawyers know lawyers. So coming up, did you know any attorneys when you were a kid? I didn't. I did not. Hmm. So you didn't even know an attorney coming up. So how did you even get the concept to be an attorney as a kid? Well, I like to talk and I could write pretty well. And when I was in high school, I remember going to see the counselor, uh, Miss Audrey Lester in, in Renaissance High School, and really trying to maybe between my sophomore, junior year, really trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, I remember taking a test which it was like an aptitude test that really tried to match you based on your skill sets with a profession. Mm -hmm. Law was one of them. I like, I, like I said, I like to read, I like to write and I like to talk. And so I said, yeah, I, I think I can do that. Okay. All right. Uh, writing skills. Yes. How did you know that you were a good writer? When did it hit? When did people start complimenting you that you're not um, like the rest of the class? In elementary school, I mm. remember I would write stories and we had contests and I would win. Mm. Um, and you remember any of those stories? I remember one story. I can't remember what it's about, but one that I won was called the 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 orf the girl from Springfield Orphanage. I don't remember what it was about, mm. but I remember I won. So okay, all right. So 
it was one of those writing things. Writing generally goes with reading. Were you reading a lot and that helped you as a writer or was it just one of those things you were very creative? A little bit of both. Um, my parents were both educators and so I learned to read before I went to school, even to kindergarten. And so we, hmm. in, in the family, we would have like reading contests over the summer. I have two older sisters and a younger brother, and we hmm. would have a contest. Whoever read the most books over the summer would get a prize. So reading really was fundamental, like they say, and my parents that's really something. encouraged it. And so I, I know that that played a big mm-hmm. part in my vocabulary. Ain't that something? Mm-hmm. As, as me and my friend Con would say, that sounds like lambda, lambda, <laughs> lambda. <laughs> Revenge of the nerds. <laughs> the summer we were doing everything but reading. <laughs> I had one of those, like, you either inside or outside. <laughs> it's like, mm. let's think about this. Inside has popsicles. <laughs> Outside has my friends. What decision? <laughs> the trauma of a six-year-old. <laughs> All right, so um, so this is what's happening at a young age. And let's talk a little bit about your parents. Um, sure. Were they, did they live in Detroit their whole lives and your family background and ties to Detroit? That's interesting. Neither of my parents are from Detroit. I'm a first-generation Detroiter. Okay. My parents were both from Akron, Ohio. Hmm. and uh, Rubber we, City. Yes, absolutely. And so what brought them to Detroit was they, they met in, in college at the mm. University of Akron, wow. both in the School of Education. My mom graduated a year before my dad. Hmm. And actually, a little bit of, of trivia, she became the first black teacher in Barberton, Ohio. Hmm. And so she was working during my dad's senior year um, he after he graduated he could not get a teaching job in Ohio hmm. so they applied um, he apl- they both applied for life teaching licenses in Indiana um, Ohio and Michigan and so the Detroit public schools was the first system was the first one that offered my dad a job and so that's how they landed in Detroit in 1960 okay all right so was it one of those things where you feel or he felt that he couldn't get a job because of racism because it was too many teachers like what what were the circumstances of a black man wanting to be in a classroom not being able to get to a classroom it was definitely racism Um, my mom had experienced it too they would go down for interviews uh, where they said we need teachers desperately and Mm. when they would show up then they would say there were no jobs available we weren't thinking you <laughs> exactly you were not our exactly. prototype because in fact the the urban league actually had to get involved to get my mom the job that she got wow yeah ain't that something ain't that something so coming to detroit what year did they move here 1960 they moved here in 60 okay so that was like right as people were saying the mass exodus was beginning meaning that a lot of white flight uh, yes was taking place uh what neighborhood did they move to? Broad Street. Oh, okay. Yeah, Broad Street. They, um, my cousins had a grandfather who um, had a house on Broad Street, and so they lived with him for a year. Then they moved to Bayless. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So is Bayless the home that you remember growing up in? I didn't grow up in at Bayless. They from there they saved, bought a home in Northwest Detroit um, on Santa Rosa still have the home today so that's where that's my home 
Okay. Yeah. Santa Rosa, like Mumford neighborhood, basically. Right, right off of um, West Outer Drive and Livinois. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so basically that would be like a Mumford kid. Yes. Okay. What was the, what do you remember about that neighborhood growing up? I remember uh, it was a safe neighborhood. It was a fun neighborhood. Um, by the time that I was growing up, there were not. We had one um, white neighbor, but. All of my memories of uh, basically an en- entire block of blacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any any stories you remember? Like, I, I remember hearing a lot about B. Siegel. Yes. That's what people always talk about. Oh. But what do you remember more so, like, the stores and I, other things? Right. I, what I remember is that there were a lot of nice stores. There was a place called Ferguson's, which is now where, I don't know what they're doing with it now, where the... Hunter's Supper Club was. That was a high-end retail place. I remember there being a Bell Jacobs, which is where the African braiding place is now by Cambridge. Mm. There were a lot of high-end boutique-type places. And I remember my dad would always say that when they first moved there, they would do a lot of window shopping. And he always predicted that by the time they were able to afford what was in the stores, the stores would no longer be there. And he was right. Ain't that something? Mm-hmm. Ain't that something? Mm-hmm. So he, he, well, he can also uh, really shop, but it's like a dollar stores or something. It, right. It wasn't the you know. same type of merchandise at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the Hunter Supper Club now, it's funny, it's, it's a guy know Chad. Chad has this thing called I'm Here. Okay. He does, God knows, he, he's like from California. He does specialty Japanese wood carving. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, it's unique. But Hunter Supper Club is definitely a place that a lot of people have uh, frequented events, meetings, cabarets, mm-hmm. God knows, you know, all types of stuff. So that neighborhood, growing up, uh, and your parents, what, what schools were they teaching at? Well, my mom, I don't really know what school she taught at. She taught first grade. <laughs> yeah, boy! Public Enemies Minister of Information, Professor Griff, celebrates the 30-year anniversary of the best hip-hop album ever. Thursday, June 28, 2018, at the Jam Handy. Witness a special behind-the-music unsung tribute to Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back album. Hip-hop performances from Mahogany Jones, Kari Way Frazier, and more will honor the landmark album. But um, she stopped teaching after I was born to really stay be a stay-at-home mom, and she really became like an activist at all of our schools. She was like an unpaid volunteer because she knew the importance of education. So, I mean, she every school that I went to, she was right there as if she was an employee doing supplemental stuff. They even wanted to pay her after we graduated and she was like no I'm not doing it so um, I don't know what school she taught at but my dad um, was a career educator and so I know he started at Miller Junior High School and then he went to Martin Luther King Junior High School and then he stopped teaching in the public school system because he pursued his postgraduate degrees. He got a degree in um, guidance and counseling from Wayne State, and then he got um, a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And then from there, he went and worked in Lansing for several years for the Michigan Board of Education. Then he came back um, to Detroit and worked at Wayne County Community College as a program 
um, developer and then as a professor, and he taught, well, I'll get to what he taught, professor and then a counselor. Um, he specialized in black history, um, that, and he would teach a range of subjects, but they all, that was the broad connecting point, different facets of black history. Okay, so your mom was like that person in the lunchroom that like, when I was in middle school, would be like, stop running. But no, she played Stuff more of an like act. She, she did an active role, not okay. so much an aide, but she would actually, like, organize cultural events for us. Oh, okay. she, uh, arrange people to, uh, for, for dance troops and different people to come and to teach different things. So it was much more hands-on. More active than mm -hmm. just, like, volunteering where teachers say, uh, do something I don't feel like doing. Right. It was over and beyond that. Yes. Okay. And your dad, in this journey of black history and working in education, what was his takes on a lot of things that were happening? Because throughout, I guess, his, his career, his tenure, um, Michigan itself went through the transitions of the, the, the demise of the public school system. Well, he um, he read a lot. I mean, we've got a great library at home, and um, he he had an outline that he always viewed everything through, and so it was kind of ironic because in his later years, before he retired, he would teach a class called Illegal Narcotics in the Black Community. And he would teach specialized courses like that that a lot of police cadets had to take as prerequisites, you know, to mm -hmm. to passing. And but no matter what subject that he taught, he always started with um, a very detailed outline of the transatlantic slave trade because he felt like it was important that everybody that looked at black history know how we got here because he felt it was a direct correlation between how black people got to this country and and the problems that we face now. Yeah. So he looked at everything from that context and could always relate it to things like that. So. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And condolences, I know, um, his passing. Yes. Uh, as Thank of recent. You. Um, Sounds like I should have been kicking it with your pops about all types of stuff just on the strength of like to enter that premise as I do believe many of the challenges we face today in our community is tied to the trauma still existing from what happened during the Mayafa, the Middle Passage, yes. the transatlantic slave trade is different terms. But that form and that trauma is um is still so ever present on so many levels uh, in the black community. Yes. As I've been told that if you have an alcoholic in your family, that that could last and have impacts for three to four generations. So I can only imagine for over 400 years as slavery, I often tell people, slavery predates the existence of the United States of America. Absolutely. So before this was a United States, one thing that all the states did unite around was enslaving black people yes 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 <laughs> and having them serve whatever purpose as the labor yeah so um it's it's a concept when we think of tying how race and racism play such a role in all the facets of america and american life yes it may be the the most it may be the most american institution that exists actually I sometimes argue that or I think that 
because it plays such a strong role in access to having a job, yes. access to uh, where you want to live, yes. access to, um, you know, like, uh, you know, those old school things like grandfather clauses, yes. uh, sundown towns. Yes. And even though these things aren't explicit, even when we get into some of these discussions that we were having before the show, uh, these grandfather clauses kind of exist just due to certain network sustainabilities and the systemic, uh, the systemic opportunities that are not uh, provided amongst our people. So in this journey, you become an attorney. Yes. What did your parents think of you becoming an attorney as educators? Well, my dad felt very strongly that whatever occupation that I decided to undertake, I needed to be able to get a job at the end of four years. He was adamant about that. And so I... I, Your dad was old school with that. (laughs) Yes, he was. You are not coming back here (laughs) without a job. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So he, I I minored in journalism because he really wanted me to be a journalist. He really wanted to, he pushed that part of the writing because he was really big on saying you need a job at the end of four years mm-hmm. and you can write and they have jobs for writers so you should take them mm-hmm. and um but he agreed that was a different era yeah <laughs> and, and i i would i would tease him i said aren't you glad i'm not a journalist now Hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but he said um but you know what he said as a lawyer you can always work for yourself so i'm not going to stand in your way go ahead and go to law school and mm-hmm. so that's what i did um my mom they both just really wanted me to be happy but my dad believed it hey you don't have to like your job as long as they pay you well and you can do it. That's why they call it work, you know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, that's real old school. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm definitely of the new school. <laughs> I'm not doing nothing I don't love. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not doing nothing I don't love. Yes, I am That's that old school theory. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, who said like it? <laughs> Liking a job. Right. Like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers and sisters. What uh, what was their take on you becoming an attorney? Well, we never really talked about it. They they thought I had a big mouth, and so they thought that I would be good at it. So yeah. basically, they were like, I'm sick of arguing with you. <laughs> Let you somebody else somebody do it. Else. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and that's what people often assume, that attorneys just sit around and argue all day because, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever been, if you've ever sat on a jury, uh, one of the first things that's going to happen is you're going to go, uh, you're gonna go, and whoever the the uh, whoever leads the court, uh, they're gonna the magistrates will come to you and say, "This ain't nothing like TV." <laughs> <laughs> and the reality is, it is nothing like TV. No, it's not. But it's not a lot of the back and forth. No. And, you know, nobody's like, you know, an attorney has a briefcase and then they walk over to a briefcase and pull something out and say, have you seen this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. It does not. But law and order, it happens. It but does. Not, not, in, not in real life. No. So uh, transitioning the thought of your idea of what a lawyer was to the reality of what a lawyer is, how has that journey been? It's been very interesting. Um because you're right, unless you're in trouble, most people do not have an, any idea of what a lawyer does. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that even as a law student, 
And even as a law clerk, you really have no idea of what a lawyer really does. Law school teaches you research tools and it and it sharpens tools like writing and stuff. But as far as the actual practice of law, that's why they call it practice because you keep practicing until you get it right. It, I, I don't. Th- I have not seen anything short of actual experience that prepares prepares you for it. For example, one of the reasons I did not want to go into journalism is because I said, you know what? I can't deal with all these deadlines. But there are so many deadlines as a lawyer. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, so I, didn't ha- I did not have a clue. Um, I did not know the time that it takes and the research and the hours, but I'm just fortunate that my parents instilled a work ethic in me so that it wasn't something that I ran from or something that I couldn't handle. But it takes a tremendous amount of time, energy, and discipline to actually do it with any degree of skill and with the hope of getting a good outcome. And so that's what I stress the most, the people who want to go into law, that it's really not about um, being rich. You can be a lawyer and work hard and not be rich and not be anywhere close to being rich. And and that you should pick an area that you really want to practice in because I spend so much time working that if I didn't enjoy it, it would be drudgery. So Mm -hmm. and I don't think it's possible to do to be a good attorney and not like what you're doing. Okay, and as you talk a little bit about that, uh, before your work as an attorney, what were you doing? What was like? What were the jobs that led up into into this? And have you ever just woke up and said, mm, "Yep, going back to being a waitress"? <laughs> That's interesting. My parents had a very strict uh, idea. They they told me growing up that my job was to go to school and get good grades. Okay, but when I turned 17 and and I was in my senior year of high school and there were a lot of expenses, mm-hmm. you know, they allowed me to get my first job. And so my first job was actually working in retail at TJ Maxx. Okay. Okay. TJ Maxx, the original. The Maxx for the minimum. Yes. The, <laughs> the original Burlington Coat Factory. Exactly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what TJ Maxx did you, uh, did you work at the one in Northwood? No, I worked okay. at um, the one that was at Oakland Mall. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so a different, a different, more east side is that way too. Yes. Okay. So what was that experience like? It was very interesting because it was it was a long, long time ago, and so it was when that shopping center really hadn't been built up. Um, I was one of the few black people that were work teenagers that were working there, so mm-hmm. it was some interesting dynamics. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I can only imagine. And when you compare that to you starting as an as a lawyer, was anything similar? Well, I, n- I definitely had to learn how to speak up, and I, n- I had to learn how to talk to different types of people. So in that regard, there were some similarities. Um, yeah, I would say those were the two similarities. And that's what I was going to get at, because as as much as you're learning and practicing law, uh, what happens uh, in exercising it, your clients too. You know, your clients still may have no clue of what's needed. Because, like I say, most people call an attorney when they need help. Right. And really, as much as they're telling you what they're telling you, what they're really saying is, can I give you some money to help me out of this situation? That's really what, I mean, that's the conversation we're having. We're not having a uh, okay, let me give you the truth. And, right. And I want you to tell me the truth. I want you to tell me 
that you can save me from this. Right. And it'll cost as much money as I budgeted to pay for this. That's correct. You got it right. That's what that's what it really boils down to for a lot of people. So tempering those expectations of your clients, how do you go about that? Well, for me, I take my role as an attorney very seriously. I consider it to be a calling. And so what I do is I'm, I have to be honest with people and because I do not believe in mm-hmm. taking money or making promises. The first thing you learn as a lawyer um, is that there are no guarantees. Um, there are certain processes that you can go with. So I try to come up with a strategy for people. I explain to them what the desired outcome will be from the strategy. And then I let them know the pros, the cons, and the risk. And then we operate from that standpoint because guarantees are something that you cannot usually provide. So that's what I do. I approach them with compassion and honesty and a little bit. And after things have been resolved, a little bit of don't do that again, you mm-hmm. know, kind of stuff. But that's what I what I do. Because okay. I, I got to tell you what you need to know and not what you want to hear. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that's probably going to do it again. So uh, as much as you've you've uh, we've we've grown in relationships and you have a lot of different types of clients and you have cool relationships with clients. I'm cool with some of your other clients and everything, too. So uh, how have you grown uh, the, the bait? Well, I guess even before we go there, school, what school did you go to? What was law school like? What was undergrad like? Uh, and I know you say that you basically kind of learn the functions of it you don't really learn how to practice but from school what what ended you uh up in the seat of like okay this is what i'm gonna do i like this and you know i I will not find myself uh panhandling to to survive with this career well I had a concept of a, what a lawyer does, and I'm a person that likes to fight for the underdog and have a nurturing way mm-hmm. about me and want to protect people. So I knew that but my understanding of what lawyers did or what, that, what I felt they needed to do, mm-hmm. I knew that that was something that I could identify with strongly because mm-hmm. that was a part of who I was anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, in Wayne State, I went to Wayne State for undergrad, didn't really know what to major in. So they will tell you that if you want to go to law school, major in political science. So that's what I did. Um, It's probably helpful if you want to go into government or politics, but I don't think that it really helped me to prepare for the career of law. Um, What I found out later was that you could practice almost, you could could major in almost anything that would be helpful, like writing, anything that involves writing, anything that involves business that could tangentially help you, economics even, you know, to to, with the actual practice and understanding of things. Mm -hmm. So I went to Wayne State, had a good experience from a academic standpoint. I did well, um, got good grades, but the Wayne State that I went to is not the Wayne State that exists now as no. far as a campus life. It was really a school at that time that was for was older really for, yeah, older people, students yeah, yeah. Um, who were, I guess, non-traditional students, I should call them as, as opposed, that's more politically correct, um, people who might have had jobs and were or, or were going back to school, but not the traditional student that was matriculating straight from high school. So I 
I felt a little bit isolated. There wasn't much of a campus life. And um, I had toyed with the idea of going to Spelman for undergraduate school because I wanted to have the HBCU experience, but I was reluctant to leave home. But by the time I graduated from Wayne State, I was more than ready to go. And I, and I had made a commitment that I wanted to go to an HBCU for law school. Okay. All right. So what was law school like? Law school was probably one of the happiest times of my life. Um, hmm. It was a lot of fun. So I, I initially wanted to go to Howard's Law School and was accepted to Howard, but Howard did not give the financial aid that I needed. I had a brother that was four years younger than me who was starting undergraduate school at the same time. He had also got admitted to Howard but didn't get the scholarships that he need. Basically, it was too much of a financial burden for our family for us to attend uh, Howard. He ended mm -hmm. up getting a full ride to Prairie View A&M hmm. in Texas. And so I, I found out uh, and was offered a scholarship to Thurgood Marshall School of Law, which is a part of the Texas Southern University in Houston. And so I went off to Houston, Texas Southern, and uh, he went off to Prairie View. So. For three years, I mean, the weather was beautiful. Houston was a great place. But more importantly, um, I really enjoyed uh, Thurgood Marshall School of Law. The students, um, I, ha I made friendships that I have continued to this day. But even more importantly, the professors really cared. And they made it an environment that was tough. But it was one where they stressed trying to make sure that you had what you needed to survive. Mm -hmm. And so it was a supportive, nurturing environment. Um, and coming from Detroit, a predominantly black city, to that predominantly black law school was a good feeling. Mm -hmm. I, I, even, I just like the historical um, ramifications of how it came to be, you know, because it was actually established based on the case Painter versus Sweat when there was a um, 1947 Supreme Court case still dealing with separate but not equal a black man wanted to attend law school and so rather than allow him to attend a, an existing law school they created Texas Southern University um, the law school Thurgood Marshall School of Law ain't that something mm -hmm. ain't that something alright so <clears throat> when we think about law school and from there I think I definitely believe the first journey, and I know the answer to this question, but the first real journey into it is where you go after law school as an intern and the practice there and the experience that you get there. Um, where were you at? And from there, how did that impact you? Well, it was interesting because everything that I liked about being away from home um, for law school turned to be a disadvantage when I got back here trying because I would come home summers trying to get a job mm -hmm. and because I wasn't already um, in a network of lawyers here it was very difficult for me to get a job. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. So my first summer between the end of my first uh, year of law school and the beginning of my second year of law school, came back here 
and I went to the state appellate defender's office seeking a job. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the attorneys wanted to have me as a law clerk, but then luckily there was an attorney there who turned out to be the mother of one of my um, high school and elementary school classmates. So she agreed to um, work with me. None of the other attorneys in the office would, and so I, mm-hmm. that was my first job. Mm-hmm. And so I felt really good about it, you know, because being wanting to help the underdog I thought okay this is great um I can help somebody who's been wrongfully incarcerated um worked on a brief I remember going up to Ionia I guess that's a medium security prison Mm -hmm. and I remember when I heard the I had to go through the metal detector I had to be frisked and and I was like I don't I don't think I can do this I think that I probably could help in a better capacity I want to help people but I, I thought this is not me Mm. You know, so, but I, it was a good experience because, and I'm glad that I had that because at least I was exposed to it, but I didn't think that I had the personality to really be effective. Okay. So that summer kind of taught you that criminal law really ain't your thing. Right. From there, where did you go back and say, okay, I still want to continue to pursue law. And how did you shift into entertainment law or intellectual properties? Well, you know, I had always... That was something that I probably got from my dad because I would always, I was very much into black history because of what he exposed us to. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed music quite a bit. Um, I'm a classically trained pianist. I took piano lessons for 10 years. I never had any aspirations of being a performer, but just really identified with the artist whose music I enjoyed. And Mm -hmm. so I would read books about them. I would look at documentaries because I was the type of person that, and still am, I want to feel like I know the artist. And so when I like your music, I want to know as much as I can about you and what made you the person you are to create this type of art. Mm -hmm. And so when I would read these stories, I kept seeing the same stories over and over again. Um, There were artists who made a lot of money for a lot of people, but at the end of the day, they were broke. Um, And it was because, uh, and I started to notice a pattern. Mm -hmm. It was like, well, maybe maybe they had the wrong attorney or some wrong accountant, you know, who stole from them, wrong management, or they didn't pay their taxes, or they got addicted to some controlled substance and that impaired their ability to keep up with their things, or they had family members that sabotaged them, and invariably they were broke or dying early, and I felt like if I could see these patterns, then we might not be able to stop all of the pitfalls, but there are some things that we can avoid, and these are common patterns. Yeah, I was going to say, generally it's like all of them combined. Right. And so I I was like, people should not be falling victim and prey to these same things. And so I, I, this is something that I always, you know, how you have the pipe dream of what, if I could do anything, that Mm -hmm. this would be what I would do. And so when I, I remember when I was going back to law school for my, to start my second year at the end of that summer, as I mentioned before, my dad was also a counselor, and so he was talking to me about what type of law I would like to practice. So I mm-hmm. shared with him, you know, the same type of things I was saying mm-hmm. to you. And he said, well, is there anybody in Detroit that practices entertainment law? And I said, yes, there's this attorney named Gregory Reed, but um, I don't know him. I don't know how to meet him. And I said, I'm mm-hmm. sure people approach him all the time about, mm-hmm. you know, trying to work with him. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Your relationship with Gregory Reed 
was already something that you knew about. How did you even know who Gregory Reed was? Well, I love sports and entertainment, and I love Detroit, too. And so Mm -hmm. I remember being in high school, just reading about him. I remember Mm -hmm. going to, like, I remember distinctly when I was a senior or junior, he was um, the lawyer for the soldiers play when it was at um, the Fisher Theater. And I remember him donating tickets to the Detroit Public Schools and me going to the to see the play. I remember hearing about him because I'm a sports fan too during the Kronk heyday, you know, with Tommy mm-hmm. Hearns and Hilmer Kente and knowing that he was mm-hmm. representing Kronk and all those boxers. And it just made me feel good to see to see what was going on and see that somebody right there in Detroit was doing it. So he was definitely on my radar for those reasons. Okay. So from there, I know you ended up working with Attorney Reed. Yes. How did that start? Well, I felt like this was divine intervention that was kind of confirmation that this is something that I should be doing. Um, I, As I said, I went to Thurgood Marshall School of Law, but I didn't mention there was only one other person in my class from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so we were studying... Um, I was about to go home for the summer between the end of my second year, at the end of my second year of law school, and we were studying, taking a study break, and he, we were just talking. He had no idea I wanted to be an entertainment attorney. Mm-hmm. He just asked me, he said, Stephanie, are you going to stay here for the summer? Or are you going home? And I said, I'm going home. So he said, well, do you have a job? I said, no, but I need one because my parents had told me, you, when you come home, you better have a job. So yes. he said, well... Um, I'm dead. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so he said, well, I'm, I worked with an attorney last summer, and I think he would like you. Do you want me to call him and see if he would like to interview you? I said, yeah, sure. Who is it? He mm-hmm. said, Gregory Reed. Ain't that something? Yeah. So, so at that's, that, that's somebody that uh, never has to buy a sandwich <laughs> when you're around him. Exactly. What's, what's his name? His name is Roderick Weatherly. Ah, yes. Mr. Weatherly. Yes. Sandwich on Stephanie the rest of your life. Absolutely. So he, he made the call to Gregory Reed, and I, I interviewed with Mr. Reed. He hired me, and mm-hmm. as they say, the rest was history. We worked well together at the end of the summer, so well that he said, would you like to continue working for me remotely mm-hmm. during your last year of law school? Mm-hmm. So I said, yes. Yeah. So he, at that, you know, that was before the Internet. You know, I hate to date myself, so we, yeah. could, we couldn't, you know, he, he would send me things by FedEx. I would send mm-hmm. them back. I would fax things to him. So the last year, my last year in law school, I worked with him remotely. I graduated and came back here, and he offered me a position as an associate. And then I worked with him for eight years before starting my own firm. And he continues to mentor me and to be a colleague and a friend to to this day. Okay. So those eight years in working with Attorney Reed. Yes. um, Now let's kind of get back to that discussion of like what you wanted to do. Yes. Uh, As I've I've had um, Attorney Howard Hertz on here, another entertainment attorney. And I definitely have this question for you of interacting with artists. Yes. It's very difficult. It is. Just because the the artistry itself, I believe, takes place in exploring the insecurities and the vulnerabilities that we have in life. Uh, that also is what leads to uh, the sex, the drug use, the, 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 the people that uh, may be leeching on for whatever reason at certain instances. Like, it can lead to destructive behaviors and altered states of reality yes that compromise good business yes 
So now I'm just talking about the eight years after when you went on into your practice. Yes. Looking at it, uh, what relationship do you see the ups and downs? Because you know how artists are. I got to take this drug to wake up because and then I got to take this drug to go to sleep. I got to, you know, associate with these people because if I don't associate with these people like that weird concept, like and to help these people that may be beyond helping in some instances. Well, I guess it, it for me, my I, I, I would call myself having a holistic approach because I realize that there are certain ways that that I am. I'm nurturing. I look at an artist or any potential client first from a health perspective because I know that they cannot be any good to themselves or anyone else if they're not healthy. And so mm-hmm. by the same token, I know that if they are stable in those ways, they'll be more effective as artists. So everybody does not want to hear that. So I, 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 have, I play a nurturing role because I'm not going to I can't operate in a vacuum because if I see that you are not in a healthy state, I can't, I'm not built to ignore that and to say, just sign this or just do this. So a lot of people don't want that type of involvement or caring from an attorney. They say, okay, you're my attorney, look at my papers. So if that's the mindset of that person, I don't deal with anyone that way because I look at you as a human first. So for me, on the pro, I guess on the, on the front end, I try to do what I can as an advocate to make sure that you're not in a position where you're overworked, where you feel like you need to have uppers to be up and downers to go to sleep. So mm-hmm. those are the th- types of things that I do from a negotiating standpoint. I speak up to make sure that work conditions um, are such that you don't have to abuse yourself. But there has to be something within the artist, too, that will not only receive that, but be consistent and and give that consistent message. Um, If I know that a client is using um, things that I think are detrimental to their health, I really will talk to them about it, even to the point, even if it's not a matter of any illegal drugs, even if it's not even about alcohol, even if it's an addiction to food, I will tell any client it's 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 more important for you to be healthy. You know, I'm not going to sit there and tell you, well, you know, well, a lot of gospel artists are overweight, but they may be. But I'm concerned about you living your best life. And a part of that means being healthy, not meaning that you have to take supplements or anything, but just making sure that you can have the energy and stamina to be able to run through an airport. You say you want a tour. I don't want you to have a heart attack on stage. It can be as basic as that, but I believe that if if I'm investing time in you and you and you want to really do this, it, it's incumbent upon me not to have blinders on and not to just talk about papers and contracts. I have to look at the whole person to help you and at least tell you and guide you in a direction of where you need to be in order to maximize your talent. Otherwise, I don't think I'm being true to you and you're not being true to yourself. Okay, now as you talk about being true to you and true to yourself, especially like with food, it's like, put down the chili cheese for us. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, 
Oh, Coney's <laughs> always open. Oh, it's killing me. But, uh, but um, when we get into the 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 science of some of the the worlds connected to entertainment, especially like these social circles, these social circles often involve the drugs, the food, the sex, the like like the 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 personal demons that do exist and along with those personal demons comes you know the the entourages like um one of the rappers uh, right now is causing like all this big to do takashi 69 this guy in new york of checking in but it's certain guys like a 50 cent that's been paying for you know almost like blackwater security for for himself for years mm-hmm. for statements made you know it, it, and even something like it is as crazy as that. Like you hire, here's a classic example, and I've seen a lot of rappers do it. You hire hood security. Yes. Basically, like you hire gangsters yes. to be your security yes. instead of real security guards. Yes. When you hire a gangster to be your security because you know he's a gangster and he's the toughest guy in your hood. You know, and then you decide that you need an incident occurs. And I know you've seen this happen many a time. Yes. Um, and now you decide, OK, I want to part ways with uh, gangster security. You're mixing street business mm-hmm. with real business. Mm-hmm. You can't necessarily arbitrate. No, you can't. With the Crips. No. They're not going to show up to that mm-hmm. arbitration and no. say, you know, well, being that, you know, this uh, this guy that we hired for your security um, did sneak a gun into the venue and use that firearm <laughs> against the assailant that approached the stage. Uh, and this is causing you to get sued. Uh, we're going to part ways with your security firm because the Crips now rely on fifteen thousand dollars a month from your from you as an artist. Right. That's been banked for now and sometimes even forevermore. Right. Like, I am I know the person listening to this is thinking to themselves, that sounds crazy. But it's so many rappers and even singers. Yes. And even gospel artists. Yes. And comedians. Yes. And actors, authors that are interacting with these worlds. And when I say street, I mean, it's, 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 this happens in the white world, too. Where yes. It's like a criminal element yes. basically exploiting the 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 money that they perceive the artist has. Yes. And gets their hooks in them. Yes. How when you get because this is generally the phone call the attorney gets. Mm hmm. In those situations, which very common in rap. Mm-hmm. What what's the what what's the advice? What's the what's the uh, the 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 love given? Is it just like, hey man, you, you probably will be paying Tuki the rest of your <laughs> life. Whack one hundred will be getting ten percent of your deal, you know. And I really bring this up to say, um, somebody that I looked up to for what he did and what he represents. And I look back at it and it's like, damn, that's messed up. But like an MC hammer, mm-hmm. he basically took damn near all of Oakland on tour with them just on the strength of like, it was 
mothers coming up to him saying like, hey, you know, I don't want my son to go back to jail. So it's like, hey, man, throw a two up, throw an L up and Mm -hmm. then uh, slice your neck. And now you want the too legit to quit tour. Right. You just got to do that on stage. Right. Forty thousand dollars a year. Right. But now you hammer has entered into this family dynamic where he's relied upon. It's a balance. Um, you know, they call it survivor remorse when somebody makes it out of a of, of a depressed economy or a bad neighborhood. It's called survivor's remorse because you're torn between being happy about your success and feeling guilty about w- knowing that the people you left behind are still in dire straits. Mm-hmm. So it's a... Di- for a rapper, it's like you also are exploiting the dire straits <laughs> right to to gain right. uh, a higher quality of life for yourself right so it's it's very difficult to advise people on things like that where there are personal relationships involved when you're talking about an entourage type situation but the security thing i try to always talk from a standpoint of practicality you need trained professionals um because the same type of, I guess, confrontations that you may encounter in a club or at a venue, they require a different level of sensitivity once you have a name and a brand and um, you become a target for potential lawsuits where people might actually start something. And there are a lot of good security um, who are trained in how to defuse situations. And so when it's a situation like that, it's ultimately always it's the client's decision, but it's a lot easier to talk to people or to kind of persuade them not to to engage in that kind of um, renegade or Russian roulette type security. But when it comes to the issues of having an entourage, that's where it gets to be sensitive. And so all I try to do is encourage any artist that, if you're going to have people along, people have skills, have them actually doing something that can benefit you so that they're not a liability. It's not always now possible. How many, I was going to say, how many entourages actually have skill sets? Well, you'd be surprised. It depends also on the on well, who the who, artist is. Who the artist is because, yeah. I mean, especially now where people develop skills with social media, video mm-hmm. types of things like that. Sometimes it's it's possible. I mean, I know it's a, uh, it's a stretch, but have them have some functionality and purpose for you other mm-hmm. than starting trouble and being an expense. Like Birdman has a has a jewelry <laughs> carrier. Yeah, that's a little bit much. <laughs> <laughs> he carries my ice. <laughs> he goes from town to town and carries my bags of jewelry. Like, hey, give, take out the 2015 Rolex. Exactly. <laughs> to pay that man $80,000 a year. Mm-mm. Okay, and then as we get to Birdman, that's a glad that classically does not pay. Yes. That's the other thing about this entertainment industry. Like, uh, it's sometimes like the government. Sometimes you get a government contract and the government doesn't pay. Right. Uh, people are relying on these corporations thinking to themselves, well, it, it's a system and they're still on TV. So wouldn't they pay? But they don't pay. No. So lawyering up, as they call it, yes. is sometimes the best way to get paid. Yes. When should a person lawyer up to know that they need to get paid? When is it worth it? Because sometimes I look at it like, they have so many more resources to expend 
and should I? As it's just been a known case of Birdman or Brian Williams of uh, Cash Money or Young Money Records has been known not to pay producers or right. artists. And what he'll do is they'll drag through a long trial and he'll show up at the trial and say, look, I, I have... 25% of what you need in cash. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take mm-hmm. the cash today mm-hmm. and drop the case mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people take the cash today. Right. Well, I think that a lot of it comes from your perspective. If you look at things in a business-like way from the onset, you have a much better chance of avoiding some of the pitfalls of not, not being paid mm-hmm. because the first thing is is that you're excited that little Wayne wants to use your track so mm-hmm. you don't want to say anything to rock the boat perhaps and mm-hmm. so whatever they say goes that's probably the wrong approach to take and so at the point where you've been notified if you're a producer that hey someone is going to put my track out that's a good time to get a lawyer um that way you're going to make sure that your paperwork is going to be presented before it comes out because timing is also important there is a sweet spot in the window of time when you can make sure that the likelihood of you getting paid is going to be maximized and that's before the album is released because the record company has a deadline where they want the paperwork in there's a uh there is a um exposure to liability if they release something without having all the clearances Mm -hmm. um and so there's somebody who's in their legal and business affairs department that's pressing them both from the record company side and the publisher side, hey, we need to get the paperwork in, we need to get the paperwork in. That's the window of time that you need to get your paperwork and get it in order. A lot of times what they will do if you're inexperienced is as a producer, they'll say, hey, um, we can get to the producer agreement later. We need you to sign this producer declaration. And my advice to people is don't ever sign a producer declaration. The producer declaration is pretty much a one-sided document that's really drafted for the benefit of the record company. It pretty much gives them authorization to release it without, um, usually it doesn't, sometimes they'll pay you a portion of a producer advance, but sometimes they don't pay anything. It doesn't Mm -hmm. lock in your splits what's your producer royalty rate or any of the terms of payment. It basically just says that, hey, I produced it and I authorized the record company to release it without any liability and I'm giving up my interest in the copyright of the sound recording. So it basically gives them a free clearance to do it. And so once they get you to sign a producer declaration, then the pressure is off of them to enter a producer agreement with you. And um, you spend a large amount of time chasing them down um, and ultimately, it could come to a situation where you do need to go to court and because they don't have an incentive. Okay. And you just talked about a whole nother challenge I, I find often with this is that the industries like it's almost like a party that you're getting invited to as an artist mm-hmm. because you'll meet somebody and like, okay, here's a classic, um, classic artist thing that I've seen happen. You'll get a song that trends on YouTube or something, and then somebody will reach out to you and say, hey, we want you to perform at South by Southwest. And it's like, wow, I want to perform at South by Southwest. We'll fly you out, and we'll give you, I don't know, Mm $2,000. Never been nowhere. You want to go there. You go there. You meet somebody. The person you meet is the initial person. Like, hey, man, I really think I could get you on some more shows if you let me manage you. Now you met your manager. Right. Your manager's like, okay, we getting better now. 
Now I want to introduce you to the right lawyer. This mm-hmm. is the guy that you need to meet. Mm-hmm. Now you got yourself a lawyer. Right. And then that lawyer is like, hey, we can really get you an agent. Now they gave you an agent. Mm-hmm. Hey, we can get you a publicist. Like over time, the people that are providing you business are also giving you all of the your network for who you associate with. Right. Meaning like they're saying that you're you're being referred that this is the best person you can go to right. for all of the services. Right. As if you went to um you know, as if like you're you're walking in you know, it's like walking in the Foot Locker to say, okay, I just really want to buy some socks. Right. But then it's like, oh, I'll buy some socks. Then you buy some shoes. Then you buy some shorts. Then you buy a shirt. Then you buy a jersey. Then you buy, you know, like every everything you're being referred to right. is initially referred by a system that you're not a part of. That's true. And then you end up in these intertwined relationships. Yes. Of the guy you buy your house from, right? The guy you buy your house, your car from, yeah. Like, oh, you can't buy a car from a lot. You an artist now, you, right? You can't do that, right? I mean, we let's just go on and let's uh let's 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 do a private jet, yes. And then you're like, why why are we doing a private jet? I can mm-hmm. I can fly Delta. Nah, man, we don't got time for that. Yeah. But the private jet is owned by your manager's cousin. Yes. It's the 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 direct car company that you're paying twenty percent more for Mercedes is owned by. Your agent's uncle, mm-hmm. you know, like it almost like a, a a a whole a whole like wing of resources that you think even drugs included, yes, and prostitution mm-hmm. is all interconnected to like the network of like probably that first person you met, which you feel some like. Um, you feel like some, I guess, bond and yes. some, um, you have like reverence and, yes. and, and like that, like, man, I should honor this person. So mm-hmm. I don't want to, as you say, ruin anything. So I should probably use their attorney. Yeah, that element exists. And and to a degree, there is a, a lot of incestuous relationships. Yeah. And so what I always encourage my clients to do is that if you follow good, solid business practices and you make no exceptions regardless of the situation or who's involved, then you cannot go wrong. When you start making exceptions, oh, well, I don't want to offend this person, or oh, well, well, I've known him, he's been good to me as his cousin, so I, can, I might as well do what he says. It's important to develop your own business judgment and discretion, and you only do that by by evaluating um, information you've been given and making informed decisions. And as a role, uh, my role as a lawyer, that is what I learned is what my job is really to do is to educate, um, to protect to the extent that I can, but most importantly to inform my client of the circumstances and the potential um, outcome of certain decisions. And if I have given you enough information to make an informed decision, I've done my job. And so I encourage people to think freely. I encourage questions because it's important. It's your life. Just like when you always, I would always hear, you know, Oprah and Bill Cosby saying, sign your own checks. Ultimately, you may be creative, but you are ultimately responsible for whether you wind up broke or not. 
And so those artists who say, I just want to deal with the creative side, too often are the people that end up with nothing. And well, people count on you doing that. 90% mm-hmm. of artists I know mm-hmm. feel that way, mm-hmm. if not more. I, I'm, but I'm being very... Um, I'm being ambitious by saying 10 don't because mm-hmm. 90% mm-hmm. say that. Well, generally what they'll say, it's not that. It's like, you know, I really just want to focus on the artsy stuff, but I'm going to get the right person to focus on the business stuff. Like MC Hammer with his brother mm-hmm. is a well, classic example. Well, the right person is really you. And it, it doesn't mean that you're going to be responsible for everything, but you need to be the one that's making decisions and delegating. And you can abdicate that if you want but I can guarantee you that the people that have abdicated um, if they had the chance to do it over again after they've lost substantial amounts of money um, and it's nothing it's it's just that you're the one that works for this money and let's face it I don't know anybody who comes up as an artist that's born with a silver spoon in their mouth and makes millions of dollars and is used to it. You know, they work for this money and they work to get Mm -hmm. where they're going to be. And so you have to, you cannot get there and then not take the proper precautions to conserve it and Mm -hmm. to use it properly. I mean, you will hear because I keep track of the different lawsuits and things that are going on. Neo had a business manager that stole $2 million from him because he had access to an account. I don't know. Dane Cook, Neo, uh, Mary J. Blige, Sierra, Mm -hmm. Rihanna. Rihanna's whole situation with her accountant was uh, something that really wasn't on TV, but uh, her accountant took, they say, you know, three-fourths of all of her income. And what's crazy is even in the, the, the legality of this, mm-hmm. the argument that the accountant will present, like, you know, Michael Vick's former agent, mm-hmm. is going to probably be honored because some of these people doing this, Richard Pryor, some of the people they're doing business dealings with, uh, know how to arm themselves as they're I don't even know. It's so weird. It's like it's stealing money, but it ain't even stealing money when they it's like, okay, it's actually stealing money, but legally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not. As you know, Mike Tyson was paying a hundred and fifty dollars for for hand towels from right. Don King. Right, right, right. You know. So you ultimately have you have to take it. So you can take the responsibility after you're taken mm-hmm. advantage of or before. So you owe it to yourself just like I tell people who want to who might come to me for something as simple as um, a copy to copyright music and then they'll be upset about the cost when I say well you should copyright every song separately you can do it as a collection but you have all of this stuff maybe you might want to do it separately and they'll complain about a $55 filing fee but you've invested thousands of time of of hours in studio time recording Mm -hmm. costs and you know creativity is priceless to me you can't put a value Mm. on it until you sell it so at the point that you're not willing to make certain commitments to what you're doing either you are acquiescing to being taken advantage of or you just don't care you know what I Mm -hmm. mean you cannot nobody's going to care about what you have or have a stake in it as much as you are so you Uh you can delegate and you should delegate but the buck should should stop with you. You should make your own decisions, and you should insist that you make the people who work for you accountable to you before, you know, before something obvious goes wrong. 
those types of checks and balances can help to minimize you losing money and it can lead to corrective action before it's really become a point of that's damaging to you okay and in this world also mm -hmm. some of it is the go along and get along because you'll get labeled as and and you i am <laughs> i am labeled as hard to get along with but um you can easily get labeled as hard to get along with by not accepting eh, no nah, i want to bring my own attorney i want to bring my own photo person i want to bring my own video person i got some people that do that business what's the percentage on that you can easily get labeled as that and then the part of the winning rome is the whole like i mean this person does that for kim kardashian and kanye west i mean that those name drops and those circles and this is another level you know this only person especially, mm -hmm. especially for the like the black entertainment attorney mm -hmm. he gets labeled as you know go to the jewish entertainment attorney mm -hmm. after a while mm -hmm. the black entertainment attorney can only get you to a black level of success mm -hmm. but to get to that next level you, you need to work with the person that's you know um spending weekends with quincy jones well, I think that that's a personal choice that every artist has to make. I always mm. encourage people to be true to themselves. But more importantly, I can say this unequivocally, that you, I, I would always encourage someone to deal with professionals that care about you as an artist and a person and don't and are not just interested in how much money they can make off of you because the person that is only with you when you can make money for them is a very shallow relationship and it's one that is is destined to end at some point when you have people that mm -hmm. care about you and that commitment and their commitment to you goes beyond how much money you can make them um that's when i think that's the difference between hiring an attorney um, to do a job and having an attorney that's really going to protect your best interests because they see you more than as a dollar sign because you cannot pay you can pay someone to provide legal service you cannot pay someone to care about what happens to you now this is the other flip side of that I gotta get an argument because mm -hmm. I know a lot of artists are looking at this if mm -hmm. you're still watching this is a real deep discussion um, oftentimes when those unreasonable offers are given, they're given with unreasonable deadlines, too. Yeah. It's like, look, you need to get your agent right now. We need a publicist. And this person's ready. Mm -hmm. We're about to start this Drake tour. Are mm -hmm. you ready to come on tour with Drake or Eminem or the Beatles or, I don't know, Jesus? You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Are you ready right now? And you're like, well, I haven't really gone through the resume and I want to. And it's like, oh, man. Well, you know, maybe you'll, you know, maybe uh, you'll come back because. That story exists a lot too. It where does. artists, you know, like I say, I'm I'm labeled as hard to deal with because I like I mean, even with Detroit is different. And, and I think I'm very easy to deal with. I just like I to think know you what's happening. I like to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I like uh reasonable answers to questions that I have. But sometimes by even posing a question, I'm hard to work you know what I'm saying? I'm hard to work with. Well, I there is a tendency in the industry, I believe, to treat artists as children and to ha for the v record company and associated handlers to kind of serve in the parental type role. And to a certain degree, sometimes it does involve babysitting. But I always tell my clients that um, there is before you can have any type of relationship with anyone, it has to be a mutual respect. 
And so you teach people how to treat you. And so there's some give and take on both sides because every, I mean, if we look at the history of how artists have been treated, more often than not, they get the short end of the stick. So unless you want to fall within the general category of being treated as an artist and falling into the same pitfalls that they have succumbed to, you have to look at and you have to learn from situations. If that means that you're being difficult because you have your own people involved um, and, and they are competent, I mean, let's be clear, they mm-hmm. have to be competent. You can't bring along somebody who is inferior. Um then it's something that's better dealt with sooner than later. If you have to do something fast, I have never seen a business situation that ended well when someone did it in haste and didn't review it. So intuition, teaching people how to treat you, all of those to me play just as important of a role in in the success of your business because contracts are easy to get into but very difficult to to exit i mean but that's the like when people ask me like why do we need the contract mm-hmm. the contract ain't for when things go right right the contract is for when things go wrong right as uh two of my contracts that you wrote up for me uh great contracts stephanie is an excellent contract thank you <laughs> especially if you know what you want like i can i've very plain i'm like okay I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. I want to protect myself here. I want to protect myself here. I want to protect myself here. Uh, the state of Michigan and an employment law. Like I was, I was getting slammed. And but due to your contract, I was good. And I easily could have moved fast. Mm-hmm. I could have easily been on that. You know, um, you know, I could have easily just been like, well, you know, we'll work this out later, and we'll we'll get to. It. It's like, oh hell no! Between <laughs> you and Suzanne and my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things are, uh, th- things flow well when it comes to like contracts being needed. I-, I definitely am a firm believer in contracts are when things go wrong. So you can pull that out and then you can, you know, and then if everything goes right, it's good. You still have the contract, but it's, it's like insurance. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so when we, when we talk about that moving fast, not knowing what the hell you signing, trying to, you know, be in room, uh, I also, as a business person, know the other side of the debate, too, because the machine may be bigger than the artist itself, especially in today's culture of a lot of different things, where it's people that have fame and celebrities where the machine are just behind people for being like people are famous for being famous right now. Right. Like the machine is giving itself. And when I say the machine, publicists, attorneys, yes, uh, venues, um, um, you know, as so many things are consolidated and they may have always been. So you have the venue where people can experience the thing live. Now you have the media options where people can uh, consolidate it and resell it. You have the intellectual property of it. You have the, the advertising, like the entity itself could advertise different brands. Like, how you know, is the, the industry kind of has an argument in the fact that, you know, like what Motown felt, Barry Gordy felt like, look, we can have, we can have all of you guys saying heard it by the heard it through the grapevine because it's a good song and you know we can we have the etiquette coach, we have the choreographers, we mm-hmm. have the we have the songwriters, we have the engineers, and I'm making music the same way Ford makes cars. You know, 
you happen to be David Ruffin, uh, you know, uh, next coming in is Gladys Knight. You know, and it takes away the humanity of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how important is the artist and the artistry when the machine itself probably is validating what people think is good art? Hmm. I think that it's important for artists to express and almost demand that other people recognize their own individuality. Hmm. Um, when we, if you don't, you can go through a cookie cutter machine. But I think that a lot of people, and there's some common themes here. You got to be true to yourself. And I think that art is one of the truest forms of expression, self-expression. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the artist's own values, in my opinion, have to surface. Do you want to be successful for being you, or do you want to be successful at all costs? Because I do believe that the true, um, the true basis for longevity is rooted and people who know themselves and are true to themselves, because we can go down a list of, you know, one hit wonders or people who were trendy but did not stand the test of time. And it ultimately boils down to, you know, whether you're going to be yourself and nobody can tell you better than yourself who you are. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's a matter of are you going to sell yourself or are you going to do whatever someone wants you to do? Is the dream that big to you that you're going to sacrifice who you are to get there, you know? And shout out to Amp Filler. As you were saying that, I think Amp is quintessentially like <laughs> Amp's one of my favorite people ever. Mm -hmm. he, he needs He's to great. come back too. But, um, but Amp is that, you know? He is. Um, but even as you were saying that the other day it, it came up on because I listened to like a lot of like that pop music one of the biggest songs you definitely remember this in your era uh, Millie Vanilli with Girl You yes, Know It's True yes. that that song like and what's so crazy I think if that scandal were to happen today it wouldn't even be a scandal it It'd would just be not like, hey, <laughs> it you know, I still like them they cool mm -hmm. you know good looking dudes yes. uh, like weird like like uh, <laughs> as you say like like exotic looking black mm -hmm, dudes, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> no, you're, that's they can exactly. dance, mm -hmm. and 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 uh, you know, it, it was like, hey, give them a song. There you go. Yeah, and you know, and the machine was completely behind. I mean, didn't they? They got like four Grammys or something. Yeah, they had to give them back and. You know, even when I was I was thinking about them when I was talking, but then also even in Vogue, great singers, great group, but they were created by the producers Foster and McElroy. Mm -hmm. They had had no relationship with each other before, just auditioned for girls and then um, put them together based on look and sound, um, got a deal. And I'm sure that they probably, in hindsight, regret it because the producers got the majority of the money. Um, they didn't make a lot of money as artists off of sales when they mm -hmm. were, you know, at the height of their popularity. Ultimately, the group now is splintered, you know, because they didn't have a bond because they didn't know each mm -hmm. other. So it, when you look at the decisions that you're making, you, you I think it's, you owe it to yourself to look beyond what's right in front of you. 
Um, and that's why I feel like history is so important because it does repeat itself. Now I've gotten to the point that when I have new artists based upon whether they're male, female, solo, group, I recommend biographies to them um, for them or autobiographies so they can mm -hmm. read them so they can see because you know how they say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, the same families that was exploiting <laughs> Louis Armstrong. Yes, and it's not, exploiting other people, and and, and the same tactics. <laughs> it's really the same. Yeah, it's the same stuff. It's the same venues. It's the same ownership. It's just been passed down generationally. Um, I mean, same you know, tactics. You the, could, if you're a you female know. solo female artist, you can bet that if you work with a producer, there's a strong chance that that producer is going to try to get in a relationship with you, or if you have have a. Um, uh, a boyfriend or a husband, whatever, it's a strong chance, even if he has no knowledge of the business, that he's going to want to be your manager. And, and so, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not making a judgment because sometimes maybe it works, but at least be aware of the pitfalls and understand so that you can try, maybe navigate, have a different ending to your story, but it's the same dynamics. So I encourage them because I tell them, I said, look, read this and then just, you know, don't trust me, just read it and then. Look for the signs. And and on that point, we're wrapping up. But it's this was a great discussion. And you know how much I'm building my team because it's needed. And a lot of love is needed. I love having you around. We're going to have to do some more stuff. Yes. Right? I know you're doing something with Piper soon. Yes. The homie part of the podcast. Detroit is different podcast network. But uh, we're going to have to teach because it's more lessons that are needed. And I definitely have my own quirky way of going about business. But I'm three generations into entrepreneurship. So my belief system in it is a lot different than other people. And even what I perceive as success right. is different than a lot of other people too. But I really do think that bringing back these discussions in and how things function as I'll be talking to Yusef Shakur very soon, because as much as you're saying, like you need to say good business, we need to sit down and really draw up what those codes are. Me, right. you, my dad, uh, Roderick Miller, some other people need to sit down and say, like, these are codes of good business. Yes, I'd be happy to. And I'm always available whenever you want to yes. talk. We need to definitely do that because a lot of people and it ain't even necessarily the, compl the complaints like when I go to the Black Star Barbecue store. They run out of hot sauce. It's like, look, they may run out of hot sauce. They should run out of hot sauce. When you go to the bakery, you don't get mad. They run out of donuts. Right. They're not buying hot sauce to continue to have hot sauce. The goal is to run out. Right. Now, if, if they open up and are out, that's... That's a that's different a, story. That's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's happening. Yes. So, um, let's get into the classic Detroit is different questions. Um, first off... Uh, what was your very first car and what year make and model? Uh, what year did you get in and what year make and model was it? My very first car was a 1989 Ford Probe. Okay, what year did you get it? 1989. Wow, so it was fresh. <laughs> yes. You, you was bumping that, uh, what was that, the Funky Divas in Vogue album? <laughs> <laughs> Never going to get it. <laughs> where, was the, where was the first place uh, you drove to when you got it? Houston. I got it wow. because I was in law school and I needed a car. Oh man! Yes. So your dad, your dad, and them helped. Yeah, they co-signed. I paid That's for something. it, but they co-signed. Ain't that something? Yeah. Ain't that something? He was really like, you really need a job now. Yes. I'm not about to mess my credit up. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I can mess my credit up. Not, not you. Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. The classic. 
classic. Hey, we should we should do better. <laughs> um, uh, three songs. Uh, you get to play three songs. It's the end of the fireworks. You have Woodward and Jefferson, and you're a DJ. What songs are you playing? What three songs are you playing? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, Planet Rock. Okay, Planet Rock, Bambada. Uh, it's like that, and that's the way it is. Oh, you going all hip hop? Okay. <laughs> yeah, the, I think Run of, DMC. Mm-hmm. I, I I always I always juggle. It, do I like that song more or Hard Times? But okay, continue. Mm-hmm. And this is how we do it. <laughs> oh, you going like all all hip hop? Yeah. So funny. I hang around so many old hip hop heads. They were mad when that song came out because it was like <laughs> it was so weird. It was like they were mad that a singer sampled a rap song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though rap is like built off of sampling, mm-hmm. it, you know, but the backwardsness of you know, yes, it's like you know what I'm saying. You got this dude from L.A. that was like big into like. Uh, New Yorkers did not like yeah, West when, Coast music. Exactly, when that was the place for hip-hop and no place else. Yes, mm-hmm. this is how we do it. Montel Jordan, mm-hmm. that's a classic unsung, you know, all types of... Oh, it is. All types of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty sure it's like an unsung too with him being a preacher right <laughs> now. So, uh, the very last question, if you could rename Woodward after one D-Trader, who would it be and why? Coleman Alexander Young. Okay, the most votes, but why? Because he embodies what the spirit of Detroit is to me. Mm-hmm. I remember um, growing up, I remember going to a, a graduation ceremony and him being announced as the only mayor that this class has ever known. He mayor. just he just um, embodies what Detroit means for me. Um, fiercely loyal, tough, no-nonsense take no prisoners and um and i feel that that's a main artery to the city and i feel mm. like that would be a fitting tribute for him hmm. yeah i'm with it i'm i'm definitely with it stephanie um definitely tell people like i say this is my attorney i work with her and i've known her for years i've known her for years if you have contracts um just so people know i'm gonna give people a context of it intellectual property is not just music and arts and everything like that it's also a lot dealing with contracts and percentages so definitely when it comes to writing it up drafting it uh having a better understanding you know if you ever tried to buy a house even though it's real estate attorneys out here you are not reading all of that stuff i remember Mm -hmm. when i first got some property it was like wow this is this is this is like war and peace or something so you need to arm yourself as opposed to you know thumbing through it and just signing everywhere a person says sign um stephanie is somebody to know how do people get in contact with you the best way to reach me is on my cell phone the number is 313-506-6905 um my office number is 313-340-0440 thank you so much thank you Kari. yep